Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. It is so good to be back with you this morning. And I'm looking forward to us digging into a passage about our impact on the world. Just recently, I read an interesting article entitled The Surprising Discovery About Those Colonialist Proselytizing Missionaries by someone named Andrea Palpont Dilly. And she writes regarding the assumption that 19th century missionaries were bad for the world. She speaks of the stereotyping of Barbara Kingslover's 1998 novel, The Poisonwood Bible, in which a missionary named Price tries to baptize new Congolese Christians in a river filled with crocodiles. He proclaims, Tata Jesus, in Bangala, thinking he is saying, Jesus is beloved, but in fact, the phrase means, Jesus is poisonwood. Despite being corrected many times, Price repeats the phrase until his death. King's lover's none-too-subtle metaphor for the culturally insensitive folly of modern missions is striking. And yet, Dilly reminds us that there were other types of real-life 19th century missionaries like John McKenzie. When white settlers in South Africa threatened to take over the land of the indigenous peoples, Mackenzie helped his friend and political ally, Kama III, a chief, travel to Britain. There, Mackenzie and his colleagues held petition drives, translated for Kama and two other chiefs at political rallies, and even arranged for a meeting with Queen Victoria. Ultimately, their efforts convinced Britain to enact a land protection agreement. Without it, the nation of Botswana would likely not exist today. The annals of Western Protestant missions include Nathan Price's, of course, but thanks to a quiet, persistent sociologist named Robert Woodward, uh, excuse me, Robert Woodbury, we now know for certain that they include many more John McKenzie's. In fact, the work of missionaries like McKinsey turns out to be the single largest factor in ensuring the health of nations. Now, that's no exaggeration. Woodbury's extensive, decisive work has shown that areas where Protestant missionaries had a significant presence in the past are on average more economically developed today with comparatively better health, lower infant mortality, lower corruption, greater literacy, higher educational attainment, especially for women, and more robust membership in non-governmental associations. Woodbury says, put, uh, put out a map and point to any place where there were conversionary Protestants as missionaries in the past, and you're, you'll typically find more printed books, and more schools per capita. You'll find, too, that in Africa, the Middle East, and parts of Asia, most of the early nationalists who led their countries to independence graduated from Pro Protestant mission schools. One secular scholar speaks of Woodbury's work in this way. He says, I'm not religious. I've never felt really comfortable with the idea of mission work. It seemed cringeworthy. And then I read Bob's work. I thought, wow, that's amazing. 
They left a long legacy. It changed my views and caused me to rethink. Those 19th century missionaries were salt and light in the world. The message they carried and the work they did matters a great deal for millions and millions of people in today's world. They had a long-term permeating effect on the cultures around them as they proclaimed the message of Jesus Christ. Now, in our passage that we want to look at today, in Matthew chapter 5, we read, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand. And it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, in conversation with this wonderful passage in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16, I want us to think for a few moments this morning about the impact of our lives on those around us. And the three points I want us to consider are that we need to communicate the flavor of the faith, we need to shine the light of the faith, and we need to live the goodness of the faith. Okay, so first, our first point this morning is we need to communicate the flavor of the faith. You are the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. Now salt was very important in the ancient world. For the inhabitants of the land of Israel, salt was necessary for life, just like we know from modern science that we have to have salt in order to live. The Dead Sea, of course, provided a major source of salt and those uh, mountains around the Dead Sea uh, were a place for gathering salt, but people in the land of Israel often bargained with traders to get superior salt that actually came from the north of Israel. Salt had a variety of uses in ancient Israel, including flavoring food, just as we use salt today, um, but also it was used as a preservative and it was used medicinally. So, for instance, when a baby was born, they would rub salt all over the outside of the baby as kind of a purifying effect. Now, when we think about our common uh, table salt that we use today, we use it for flavoring food. And I'll say more about that in just a minute. But we're all very familiar with salt. And the analogy that Jesus begins with in our passage today is really that uh, salt is something that is unique. Now, the one bit that I haven't mentioned yet 
in terms of the uniqueness of salt is that it is also something that shows up in the Old Testament having to do with covenant with God. So it was a unique part of a covenant relationship kind of service because salt sealed the deal, if you will, in an everlasting way. It, brought, uh, it symbolized the permanence of the agreement that was being made. And it was a unique element that was used in that ritual when a covenant was being established. So Jesus uses the image of salt with kind of covenantal overtones, relational overtones. But he begins with a very simple thing that we can all identify with, and that is the uniqueness of salt. And we might just think about the fact that you and I are unique in what we offer the world. We are the unique medium, if you will, through which people experience the flavor of the gospel. Jesus says that if the salt becomes tasteless, and that word in Greek can uh, kind of speak of something that is insipid or flat, something that um, really has no taste to it at all. Now, my, uh, my wife is a, um, is a brilliant baker, and for years, probably the last 20 years, we have, we've had a mill, and we grind our own wheat. I know that sounds very impressive, but it's not that big a deal. So we have a, we have a little mill that sits on the counter, and she grinds her own wheat, and then she makes fresh bread. I don't know what I would do without Pat's bread, because nothing else really comes close. But in those 20 years, there have probably been two or three times when we've gotten the, bed, uh, the bread baked and have tasted it, and it just was absolutely flat. And, and what she realized was that she actually had left out the salt. She forgot to put salt in the bread. And it's amazing, but just a little bit of salt at times can transform something you're eating uh, by bringing out the richness of the flavors in that thing that you're eating. And salt is a unique taste. And Jesus, in essence, is saying that if you have salt that has lost its saltiness, then that salt becomes good for nothing because you can't find something else that's going to put the taste of salt back into salt. So uh, the key for us in this passage is that only salt can play salt's role in the world, the unique flavor that it brings to the world. And in the same way, we as believers have a uniqueness in our relationship with Jesus and the powerful message of the gospel, our view of the world that God has revealed and spoken into the world. We are the mediators of that, and that flavors the world in vitally important ways. There is a danger that as the world changes dramatically, uh, many of us as believers can get assimilated into the views and the values of the culture so that we just begin to look and taste, if you will, like anybody else in the culture. We no longer have a clear view of Jesus and the gospel. They no longer maintain their saltiness when 
Christians move away from the uniqueness of relationship with Jesus and the uniqueness of the message of the gospel. Not too long ago, Tim Keller spoke at the parliamentary prayer breakfast in the UK, and he was asked to speak on what can Christianity offer our our society in the 21st century. And he, in essence, said to those in parliament, let Christians be who they are. Let them be the salt and light of the culture. Don't try to make us like everyone else. It is in our uniqueness that we have impact. Keller said, modern society says we believe and we respect difference, but here's what you should do. Tell Christians to be true to their ideals and then critique them on those ideals and not another arbitrary standard of the culture. In other words, let us flavor the world with our uniqueness. Because if we move away from that, in the analogy that Jesus gives, then we are good for nothing. We cannot have the impact that we're supposed to have on the world if we have ceased to be salty in that sense. About 10 years ago, Kristen and Lee Hildebrand had moved to uh, a community in Milwaukee. And they actually got connected with an inner city church and decided to move to the neighborhood where that inner city church was located. And they talk about their journey, that they remodeled their own home. And then they noticed that right down the street, there was a foreclosure sign on another house. They tuned into the fact that the pattern that had been going on for a long time in that neighborhood was that people from the outside who did not live there were snatching up these run-down, inexpensive houses and then charging high rent for the people in the neighborhood, not caring about the neighborhood, not caring about the houses themselves, and certainly not really caring about the people. And so what they started doing in this Sherman Park area of Milwaukee is they and a couple of other friends formed an investment company. They kept their jobs as young professionals in the city, but they started buying up and fixing up the houses in the neighborhood. And the neighborhood slowly began to transform as dozens of houses were bought Uh, enhanced and then rented out to people in the neighborhood. This had a permeating effect that began to move the neighborhood to a decrease in crime, uh, to a lessening of poverty, and to a transformation of the lives of the people there. Uh, Over the last six years of the time before this report was given, they had restored 70 buildings in their immediate area and played a significant role out of their burden for advancing the light and the salt of Christ in their area. Um, Out of that burden, it brought about tremendous transformation of this part of Milwaukee. Friends, you and I may not be 19th century missionaries, 
We may not live in the inner city, and we certainly can't buy up a lot of houses here in Vancouver because of the cultural context and our economic situation. But the question is, what are you and I doing, even in the small things, as we reach out to those around us in our neighborhoods to bake them something or to help them with something in their home or to care about an elderly person what are we doing to flavor our immediate areas of impact with the saltiness of the gospel what are we doing all right so the first thing we need to do is to communicate the flavor of the faith the second thing is we need to shine the light of the faith to shine the light of the faith another common image that Jesus is picking up on here from everyday life. You are the light of the world. Now, not surprisingly, light also is a key concept from the Old Testament. It is used to speak in the Old Testament of revelation, uh, instruction. The law of God is said to be a light for our feet. Uh, it can be a symbol for righteousness. And especially it's used of God's presence in the world. Now, Jesus picks up on a key passage which speaks about light. And I think it's the immediate backdrop for our text this morning. In uh, chapter 4, verses 13 through 17 of Matthew, we read this. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Scholar Chuck Quarles writes, throughout the prophecies of Isaiah, the shining light is a metaphor of the Messiah and his people fulfilling the missionary purpose of manifesting the glory of God among the nations. Now this is given in Matthew 4 as the foundational idea for the ministry of Jesus. So it's not surprising that Jesus picks up on that image when he is kind of giving the, the basic marching orders of what it means to be his disciples in the world. This is why Jesus first points to the inevitable impact of light in our passage. He says that a city that is on a hill cannot be hidden. The light from that city that has been placed on a hill cannot be hidden. Now, we've probably all had that experience when we are driving up to a city at night. I, I remember years ago when I was in graduate school... I had been to speak up in Denton, Texas, which is north of Fort Worth, Texas, where I went to school, and I was driving back at night, and I was kind of coming up a rise and came to the top of a little hill, and suddenly on the horizon was this massive glow, 
and it was the city of Fort Worth, projecting light into the sky, penetrating the darkness. There's no way you could have hidden that city, even though that was not on a hill. Fort Worth is in a, in a flat uh, part of Texas. But the point is that the light has an inevitable impact as it pushes back the darkness. So Jesus speaks of the inevitability of the impact of light, and then he also speaks of the strategic placement of the light. He says here that uh, you don't light a lamp and place it under a bowl. You put it on a lampstand so it gives light to everyone in the house. Um, I don't know if you were caught in a recent kind of blackout that we had out at UBC, but uh, all of the electricity went off for a few hours, and my wife pulled out this little brass uh, candle holder, and we lit it uh, so that we could read uh, while, the, while the lights were out. It was really kind of a nice moment. She found this little uh, candle holder at one of the little uh, charity shops that we have here in Vancouver. She loves going thrifting. So this would look kind of rubbishy, and she got it for just, you know, I think three or four dollars, and she was able to clean it up and, and use it. So we brought this out, and surprisingly, this little light cast a good enough amount of light in the room to give us light to read by. Now, now of course, in the ancient world, uh, once you got to sundown, and it became dark at night. A lot of people went to bed at that point, and they would get up early the next morning. But when you did uh, need light in a room, you had little oil lamps that would burn and give light to the room. And Jesus is saying, look, you don't, in that kind of situation where there is darkness, you don't light a lamp and then put it under something. The whole point is you get it out where it can have a permeating effect on the darkness. The placement of the light is vital. And of course, the analogy that Jesus is drawing is that we as believers are lights in the world. Paul makes this uh, very overt in Philippians chapter 2, where he writes, to the Philippians, do everything without grumbling and argue, arguing so that you may be blameless and pure. Children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation, among whom you shine like stars in the world by holding firm to the word of life. Now there's a translation question there whether Paul is meaning to hang on to the word of life or holding out the word of life to other people. But his point is that we stay oriented to the word and that orientation to the revelation of God then enables us to be pure and blameless and shine the light of God to those around us. So again, it's kind of that same idea of the uniqueness of the salt. We have the role in the world of being those who through transformation are able to live before others in such a way that they are drawn to the light of the gospel. David Augsburger uh, says, Seek to live with such lucidity that the clarity of your motives becomes a lens which projects the image of Christ upon the screens of others' lives.
pretty good quote. So talking about the light that we project to the world, he writes, seek to live with such lucidity that the clarity of your motives becomes a lens which projects the image of Christ upon the screens of others' lives. I read uh, not too long ago about a village called Rattenburg in Austria, small town and getting smaller. And the reason why so many people are, are over a period of decades leaving this town is because it's covered in darkness for about three months of the year, from November to February, November, December, really January and February, so four months of the year, this little village sits behind Rat Mountain. And because of the angle of the sun, they don't get any sunlight during that period of time. It is a place of darkness. And yet, there is an Austrian company called Bartenbach Licklaber, and that company has come up with a plan to pipe sunshine around the mountain and bring it to the town by installing 30 heliostat mirrors onto the mountainside. What these mirrors will do is they grab the sunlight from the other side of the mountain and project that sunlight back into the town. Of course, it is a very expensive process, but it also gives great hope for other communities throughout the mountains uh, to be able to survive the darkness of those months. So think about that as an image of what you and I are called to do in the world. We are interfacing with a profoundly dark world. I think one of the things that we don't realize, because we all live in our bubbles here in Vancouver, in our communities, in the places of influence that we have, uh, there's actually a very dark side to any big city, a tremendous underbelly of all kinds of corruption and crime and the devastation of people's lives. We actually live in a very, very dark world. And so what we are called to do as believers is to have this interface relationship with Christ in which knowing him face to face, we are transformed by the glory of Christ as Paul describes it, for instance, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17 and 18, that we have open faces and know Christ face to face and we are transformed by him so that then we turn and project the glory of Christ to others around us in the world. We are the light of this dark world. We are the mediators of the light. Malcolm Muggeridge writes, I am the light of the world, the founder of the Christian religion said, what a stupendous phrase and how particularly marvelous today when one is conscious of so much darkness in the world. Let your light shine before men, he exhorted. You know, sometimes someone asks me what I want most and what I should like to do in the little that remains of my life. And I always nowadays truthfully answer, and it is truthful, 
I should like my light to shine, even if only very fitfully, like a match struck in a dark cavernous night and then flickering out. I think that's a pretty good uh, ambition in life, that we would be uh, people who are just shining the light that we have because of Christ on those around us so that we can have an impact for him and his kingdom. So how do we do this? How do we do this? Well, Jesus brings it all down to basically our third point, which is live the new covenant goodness of the faith. Live the new covenant goodness of the faith. So let your light shine before people so that they might see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Now, very briefly, as we move toward wrapping up here, we have first the context of flourishing, that we, as we flourish in this relationship with Christ and we become salt and light to the world, the context is we do it before people. We have to be in relationships in the world, living out the gospel in a wonderful way as we are relating to others. In other words, we don't withdraw from the world into our little Christian bubbles, but we actually continue to relate to people who are in the world, and that is the context of our flourishing. In fact, if you go back and you read the Beatitudes, uh, our passage that we're looking at is kind of the climactic point of the Beatitudes, which end with a focus on persecution. The transition point is that you are going to be blessed as the world pushes back on you, and then Jesus goes into our passage on salt and light. So the context of our being salt and light is not the secluded confines of a building. Uh, The context is us actually being out there in the world with people, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, perhaps in our families, and then living the flavor of the gospel, living out the light of the gospel with those around us. And the purpose of us being in that context is so that they will see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So I mentioned earlier that salt and light are both images associated with the new covenant in Jesus. We go back and we see the covenant foundations actually of both salt and light in the Old Testament. And these images then are associated with relationship with God and the way that people get introduced into that relationship is by us living before them in the world living out a compelling vision of what it means to have a good life and then drawing them into that salty, light-filled covenant relationship that they can have with God as well. Jonathan Pennington, a a New Testament scholar who is a, a person who's written a good bit on the Sermon on the Mount, says that this is all about Jesus' disciples being the heralds of the new and lasting covenant that Jesus offers to the world. And this calls, of course, for us to be 
involved not just in kind of giving mental assent to the faith, but embodying the faith in active ways, uh, engaging the faith with our whole lives in a way that we really are serving and ministering to those around us. There was a guy who was president of World Vision named Richard Stearns, and at one point Stearns was asked who he thought had had the greatest impact on addressing world poverty in the past 25 years. And he pointed to a person who no one has ever heard of named Steve Reynolds. In 1985, young Steve Reynolds was working in Ethiopia during a devastating famine. And he spent many days just loving and taking care of the people, trying to help people through the horrors of massive starvation and death. And one day he got a call from headquarters of World Vision asking if he would host a young European couple, Allie and Paul Houston, um, who wanted to come visit and learn about how they might get involved in caring for people who were experiencing famine. And so Allie and Paul came and they stayed for a month, rolling up their sleeves, showing compassion to people tirelessly. Paul was a musician who also entertained the kids by writing little songs for them. And Paul and Allie finally went home, but not before their lives had been really transformed and impacted by this experience under the leadership of Steve Reynolds. You may know Paul better by his nickname, Bono, the lead singer for U2. And over the last decades, Bono has traveled the globe as an advocate for the poorest of the poor. He's met with kings and queens, presidents, prime ministers, and the Pope. He has lobbied members of parliaments and congresses, and he has persuaded governments to appropriate billions of dollars to aid the poor. But Bono's impact goes back to Steve Reynolds being salt and light on the dusty streets in Ethiopia. We may think that we don't have an impact through the small things that we do, but we just don't know how God is using our saltiness, our light shining consistently over days and weeks and months of years, even during a pandemic. We have no idea how God is using us as we communicate the flavor of the faith, as we shine the light of the faith, and as we live out the goodness of the faith. You are the salt of the earth. Don't lose the unique message of the gospel that you have. You are the light of the world. Don't hide that light. Who knows how God will use us to change the world in the years ahead. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you so much for the power of your word and how it challenges us and encourages us to just be faithful in the gospel, to be faithful to the things to which you have called us. Father, I pray for this church. I pray for Dunbar Heights Baptist Church. I pray for Wes 
and for Dave and the other people who are very engaged in ministering here and through this congregation. I pray for each individual believer in this body and ask, oh God, that they would be salty in this part of Vancouver. Lord, that they would be light to those around them and that you would use them profoundly to advance your kingdom in the world. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.